I do not condone piracy. <laughs> Especially right. not of our podcast. Although it's free, so <laughs> I don't know like I don't know how you would even steal it. Kudos to you if you care that much. <laughs> Shout out to the true homies, the real ones. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Potpourri, not just to make your poop smell better. Welcome back, my turkeys, to another special edition of the Buzzwords podcast. Today's going to be a little of a uh, grab bag, or the French might call a potpourri episode, inspired by those <laughs> recent experiences with taking step three. So we're not going to give you any direct uh, vignettes, but these are some topics to maybe look out for. Definitely. So uh, like I said in the previous episode, step three had a lot of similarities to step two, and I found that a lot of the questions I was answering just solely based off the information here on this podcast. So I thought, hey, why not bring some of that fresh information back to the viewers and to Bobby and see if we can't all learn a thing or two and help each other uh, ace our board exams. Bobby, Sounds I love that you great. have so much French off the tip of your tongue. You're a very, very cultured individual. Yes, I. people have often told me that I come off as cultured, so thank you for noticing. Oui, oui. Oui, oui, bonjour, je m'appelle Robert. All right, so let's get started, Bobby. I have a 42-year-old man with epilepsy. Started on a new medication and is returning now with fatigue. You do a physical exam and it's significant for tender and large gums. What medication did they start him on? He was started on phenytoin. Perfect. So phenytoin can lead to that folate deficiency leading to megoblastic anemia. So that's why he's fatigued as well as gingival hyperplasia. It's rather specific for that medication. There are some other ones. I think calcium channel blockers can cause that as well. But for like anti-epileptics, phenytoin is the one you want to think about. Definitely. And what is the uh, more prescribed, more well-tolerated version that we use nowadays? Oh, phosphenytoin? Yeah, very good. Definitely. All right. And I have another patient. Uh, she comes in she's pregnant and she's wondering hey when are you going to check me for gestational diabetes uh is it going to be the first couple of weeks is it going to be like between 20 and 30 weeks or is it going to be right before i give birth right well that's a good question you definitely don't want to wait until they're about to give birth uh typically if i remember correctly you do it somewhere between 20 and 24 weeks unless they have significant risk factors like a history of gestational diabetes or they just have regular diabetes in which case you would do it earlier in the pregnancy yeah so exactly so unless they're high risk and it goes into like this whole another kind of like pipeline of like maternal fetal medicine but if you just have a normal premogravid uh, let's say it's a premogravid female no issues otherwise healthy uh you typically want to do it between 26 and 28 weeks you don't want, it's not one of those things that you do right off the bat um so like standard prenatal testing included includes like the rhesus antibody screening the h and h rubella varicella you get a ua you get syphilis hiv hep b like you can get all these things those are pretty standard for like a new mom she's just eight weeks pregnant she's coming in for her first visit those are all pretty standard uh, for diabetes, though, you don't get worried until, you know, 26, 28 weeks. That's when you test them. You do the one-hour glucose tolerance test. If it's greater than 140 milligrams per deciliter, you do another one, three-hour glucose tolerance test. They're kind of annoying for the patient to do, but they're important to do because if they do fail both of them, then they do need to start on insulin. Definitely. Do you happen to know the amount of glucose for the one- and three-hour glucose tolerance tests? The one-hour is 50 grams, and the two-hour is 100 grams. I'm sorry, three-hour is 100 grams? Yep. 
Very good. Perfect. That's something that probably won't show up on step two, but I've seen it described as like the 50 gram glucose tolerance test or the 100 gram glucose tolerance test on, I think it was on my mm-hmm. shelf actually for OB. So worth knowing. Yep. Definitely. Usually they say like, oh, don't worry about dosages, but I think that might be the one instance where you should be familiar at least. So I have a 40 year old woman. She comes in, she has new gout and, um, we want to start on allopurinol as a maintenance therapy. What do we do before kind of the allopurinol is set in or uh, to bridge her to allopurinol? So allopurinol is one of those interesting drugs where if you give it during an acute gouty flare, it'll actually make it worse. But if you give it during maintenance, then they will be less likely to have a flare. So in the interim, you can actually give colchicine. Exactly. So colchicine is number one. You can give NSAIDs too, but you need a bridge. It's almost like a warfarin bridge, right? You have to give heparin because the acute phase of warfarin can cause uh, dysfunction of protein C and S and lead to more issues. Um, so in the acute phase, allopurinol can exacerbate gout. So we want to bridge it with colchicine or NSAIDs. Do not choose steroids. That is the incorrect answer um, for the USMLE exam. Although technically you probably could. It's not the best choice financially. It's not the best choice pragmatically. The studies show that colchicine NSAIDs do work better. Definitely. Oh, guys, by the way, we're um we're drinking stuff. Bobby, what are you drinking again? I'm drinking water because I'm a hydro homie. Sounds I'm good. I'm kidding. drinking seltzer water. Oh. <laughs> I'm drinking Yule Jude, which is a beer by Platform. This is a continuation of the previous episode for a little bit of a behind baseball for the true fans. Little backseat, backseat snippet. And I'm drinking a grapefruit flavored seltzer water because I couldn't handle the beer that I had previously gotten. Some might even describe Bo as soft. I would never say that, but some might. I'll drink to that. <laughs> drink to that. Cheers. Back to the action. So I have a 23 year old male come in, and he's got this polymorphic rash with some central clearing. Does that make you think of anything? polymorphic rash with central clearing makes me think that the USMLE step three exam is trying to describe the traditional bullseye rash without using buzzwords and that would make me think about Lyme disease perfect that's great polymorphic rash central clearing I think polymorphic makes it more think of like there's there's uh, the morph morphia form rash like it's multiple annular lesions that have central clearing there may be dusky in the middle is another way they would say it. Um, I don't know if that helps. I wish I, ha- I could show you a picture. So but basically, are you describing yeah. erythema multiforme? Perhaps? I am describing erythema multiforme. So in the step three exam, uh, allegedly they show pictures of erythema multiforme and they'll ask you what the number one cause is typically, in which case you would answer. That is a good question. It's one of those things that you knew and like you don't, it's never that important. So you don't think about it. And then it comes back and, you're, and I'm going to tell you and you're going to be like, oh, of course. Erythema multiforme. And it's not drugs. Dang. Is it a bug? Mm. It, it's, a, it's a virus. Yeah. I am going to say, I want to say mycoplasma actually. But hey, that's a good one. That's actually uh, I would think so it's one of them. The other one is what? Just herpes, HSV. Yeah. So erythema multiforme, number one cause, HSV herpes. Number two cause, at least infectious etiology wise, the one that they're going to test you 
on the buzzwords is exactly what Bobby says, mycoplasma pneumonia. So those are the two bugs you need to remember for everything with multiforming. And there's a whole slew of drugs that we're not going to get into uh, that can also lead to erythema multiforming. I, I looked up the list today, and it's literally like almost every drug. Um, yeah. Like sulfas, penicillins, so what have you. Um, always think about erythema multiforming. If you see, it's going to be a lot of annular lesions with some central clearing or some dusky centers. Yeah. Do you know why that center is dusky? Is it kind of uh, necrosis? Very good. Cool. So you have a pregnant woman. She gives birth, and uh, everything's going okay. No issues. There's a, maybe a grade two laceration that's sewn up. No problem. Um, uterus is the appropriate size. It feels okay. But you're pulling out the placenta, and you get chunks of the placenta. So what's the big issue that you're worried about now? Uh, there's a risk of acute blood loss just from... Exactly. So there are four kind of big things that we need to consider when a pregnant woman continues to bleed. The one that we just discussed being uh, retaining the placentas. So if you get anything in the question stem about um, a placenta coming out in pieces and they don't necessarily know if they got all of it, think about retained placenta. Uh, we also talked about lacerations, which can be something like physical trauma causing bleeds. Uh, those should be pretty obvious. Uh, maybe the question stem will talk about a rather large uh, vaginal birth, among other things. The most common cause of bleeding after giving birth. Do you know what that is, Bobby? That would be... Also has to do with the uterus. Uh, uterine atony. Perfect, exactly. And you'll get that boggy uterus and, and you'll massage it, which is always first line. And But uterine atony, bigger babies, also because you're stretching the uterus out more. I think even giving uterine tonics um, can actually lead to a higher chance of urine acne because you're basically like stimulating the urine so much to contract. So by the time it's done, it's like exhausted. That's, that's at least how I think about it. So those are all risk factors. Anything that causes the uterus to kind of, to push more, to expel more energy at the end, uh, it could be a risk factor for a uterine acne. And the last thing would be a coagulopathy um, leading to excess bleeding. Hopefully something that you know about um, prior, but always something to keep in the back of your mind if you just cannot get them to stop bleeding. Definitely. And if somebody has uterine atony, what's what's your first line medication of choice? Oxytocin. Yeah, very good. What about your second line? Why There's why two. am I giving oxytocin though to help? Because it makes the uterus squeeze down on itself, hmm. helping to deal with atony. The second line is it a prostaglandin? Yeah. Then there's another one. So there's hemabate and um, forget the actual name of the other one, but it is a prostaglandin. That's particularly how you, I remember many questions about that. I had, a, I had another question. This is off the top of my head, but this was not on the formal exam, but this was on some practice exams where you had all these issues. You couldn't really figure out what was going on. She's bleeding. There's pain. What's going on? She just gave a baby. The two hints were this one getting the placenta out required extensive pulling and two there was this symmetrical kind of bulge out of the cervix. That would be uterine inversion. Exactly. So the answer choice would be push it back in. But if you've been using uterine tonics, it's stuck like that. So you need to use something to kind of loosen up the uterus. I think examples include the calcium channel blocker, among other things. Okay, here's a, uh, here's a question that really uh, grinded my gears. Hit me with that humdinger, fam. So I had a, we talked about this, 
we talked about this in a previous episode and um we had a young patient otherwise healthy with blood clots after let's say a six hour drive or something that makes you think about what i would think about a factor five Leiden deficiency perfect so we talked about that before you asked me that question um i think i even got it wrong so I was having, I had another question and it was very similar and I was looking for factor five laden as the answer. I ultimately chose like anti-thrombin deficiency or some BS mm -hmm. choice. The answer was factor five laden, but they called it something else. Do you know any other name for factor five laden? Uh, like an eponym or is it like a... What What does factor five laden mean? What does that mean? Like oh, what, like what is happening? C resistance? Yeah, exactly. They're, the answer was activated protein C resistance. So just something that was super annoying, but like, I was just like, oh, well, that's a great learning point. That's like such a, like a fourth level question. Like you have to, one, synthesize that they have a coagulopathy and then like factor five Leiden is the most common. And then you have to know like the mechanism of action of factor five Leiden. Yep. And like why the deficiency causes issues. That's very sneaky. Very sneaky. I have another patient. She's pregnant. And Again, she has really diabetes. Get a vasectomy Again. or something. Come on. <laughs> and this is one I'm not going to ask you because it's, it's just too tough. It's too specific. But it's just something I, I learned. Ask if you it. have a pregnant woman. Okay, I'll ask you. You have a pregnant woman. She has diabetes. What do you recommend for her uh, in regards to when she should give birth? Is there like, just do it whenever? Uh, is it okay to go past a certain number of weeks? Let's say it's getting later on in the pregnancy. Are there any recommendations? You want to deliver at 36 weeks. If you wait too long, then you're worried about a big baby. And if you don't wait long enough, then you're worried about fetal lung maturity. Yes. Yeah, so the the weeks I have uh, written down is 39 weeks. So I don't know yeah, if you're, what if you're 100%. The, the six okay. and the nine are the same. They're just upside down. And I have <laughs> numeric dyslexia, so here we are. <laughs> just want to make it clear. But exactly, I'm surprised you knew that. I'm going to drink real quick for that because uh, that was very impressive. Please. So that's exactly right, Bobby. So pregnant women, you definitely need to plan the gestation at 39 weeks uh, for concern of, uh, you know, the fetus being too large. And I think there's even a fetus size cutoff. I don't know if they get this specific, but my understanding, they probably did this based on some statistics, but it's like 9.9 .9 pounds. It's not 10 pounds, it's 9.9 .9 pounds. But if the fetus is like, like, you know, if you're doing some ultrasound and you see the fetus is getting larger than 9.9 .9 pounds, that's actually an indication for C-section. Yeah. Would you like to know why it's 9.9 .9 pounds? Of course, that's, yeah. That's 4,500 grams and it's kilograms converted into pounds. Oh, I did not know that. How do you know that? Because I remember that being the cutoff, but it was given to me in grams. And then I oh, beautiful. converted it. So I have another... Uh, 40 year old man he comes in i'm just going to tell you two things traveling comes back jaundiced he's got hepatitis unless he's a surfer and then he has leptospirosis <laughs> wow that's great yeah hepatitis a think hepatitis a i guess i guess if they have like what and what his, signs if would his be eyes like... are all bloodshot he's got conjunctivitis or like what is it conjunctivitis no, you're right sub Conjunctival suffusion is an eye finding occurring in leptospirosis, which is caused blah, 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 characterized by redness, but does not involve inflammatory exudate. So redness without exudate. So yeah, you see that, you see renal issues, abnormalities on labs and, and liver issues. Maybe you think about uh, leptospirosis, but what I was getting at, and then I think what is much more common is traveling, jaundice, they don't mention a pet, they don't mention a dog peeing in the water, uh, I think hepatitis A.
If they get hepatitis A once, they'll have lifelong immunity to it, so they do not need a vaccine, which was the question. Well, there you go. Something else I learned from the step three exam is that, and just studying for this exam, something I forgot is that we actually do give some prophylactic medications for kiddos with sickle cell. Any ideas uh, what medications we can give them to help them out? Well, considering sickle cell kiddos autosplenectomize usually around the age of five, I would be worried about encapsulated viruses uh, and bacteria. So I would want to give them the pneumonia vaccine. Exactly. So you give them vaccines, you give them the influenza vaccine like everybody else. You um, actually give them hydroxyurea, right, to help them. It somehow helps uh, decrease the uh, prevalence of the S hemoglobin. It increases uh, the good hemoglobin. So hydroxyurea, which is that anti-neoplastic agent, is used Doesn't in sickle cell Doesn't it increase uh, HBF, actually, which is not necessarily the good hemoglobin, but is better because it doesn't sickle? Yes, exactly. That's right. HBF, hydroxyurea. And then actually you can even give them uh, penicillin prophylactically. Right. Which is something I forgot. And then I had a couple of stems actually uh, on the actual exam, allegedly, where the patient came in and had crepitus in their mediastinum and ultimately had a spontaneous pneumomediastinum. And the answer choice, the correct answer choice was to actually just support them. Or uh, if they're getting high flow therapy such as BiPAP, to actually just stop those therapies but a lot of the spontaneous pneumomediastinum according to the answer choices resolve on their own and just require supportive therapy which i thought was interesting because i always thought it was an emergency yeah i always thought you're like oh time to call cardiothoracic surgery but interesting yeah unless it's like compromising them in some way like um those with underlying lung disease sometimes they can have very small micro tears that cause like some of the air to leak out if there's too much pressure uh, and those will actually heal themselves but like you just need to give it a little bit of time interesting and then the last question I had uh, that I wanted to bring to this podcast was a kiddo with SIDS. Um, so you had a couple parents. They had a kiddo and the kiddo died and it was SIDS and they didn't really know why. And so now they're having another kid. It's January. Um, the mom has a history of smoking, doesn't currently smoke. And they have this other kiddo that ultimately died. She asked, like, which one of these risk factors, uh, I guess, increases the risk of my kiddo getting SIDS again, my second one. So I thought that was an interesting question. It's smoking, isn't it? Yeah, but the mom didn't wasn't actively smoking. Oh. Versus but you're right. being so born smoking... in January? I didn't know that there was like being... temporal trends in terms of like <laughs> the incidence of SIDS. Yeah, so yeah, or the fact that the first kiddo already died from SIDS. Those were like the three things you had oh. to kind of consider. I would assume SIDS begets SIDS. So the fact that their first child had SIDS is probably. Yeah, so I actually don't know what the right answer was, but I, I remembered it. So I, I went home and I looked it up and I chose that the baby was getting born. It was born in January. And I think ultimately that was the correct answer. Just like something subconsciously. I remember that like, whether it be about like viruses or something, but like the winter season, kids are more likely to die from SIDS, which is interesting. Right. So I think that's the right answer. I think prior SIDS doesn't mean future SIDS. And smoking, if it's current, yes, that does increase your risk. And if the baby is sleeping on their stomach or, you know, sleeping, you know, with mom or dad, but, you know, past smoking history shouldn't affect the current state. So that was just kind of some teaching points on SIDS that I thought would be important. I'll drink to that. I know that was about kiddos and, and you're not a huge fan of pediatrics. 
And for our listeners, we have a, a couple of special guests on the books to come help us out. Some people that know this information better than us in specific fields, including pediatrics. So look forward to some fantastic uh, guests in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, if you're tired of listening to us, don't worry. We're diluting it out a bit. Because as everybody knows, the solution for pollution is dilution. <laughs> and with that, I think we'll leave y'all. As always, check out everything that we got going. We got some practice quizzes up on our website. We have free stickers for y'all. We have a Discord. We have a Patreon. We have all this good stuff that you can find all in one place, buzzwordsmed.com. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok, we have a lot of high-yield information. We've branched off into kind of some funny medical memes. We got Instagram. We got Facebook. We got Snapchat. Don't forget, subscribe to our OnlyFans. <laughs> and also, just give us a like if you're on Apple Music, if you're on Spotify, whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. You know, uh, spend a couple seconds, give it a five stars, uh, whatever the equivalent is on the uh, platform, because it helps us kind of get the word out to other users that might potentially benefit from it. In the words of former presidential candidate Jeb Bush, please clap. All right, guys, have a fantastic rest of your day and a wonderful week. Bye-bye now. See ya. <sighs> oh, the beat.